Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Takeshi Morisato. Today, I'll be talking to Janine Beichman, who is the translator of This Overflowing Light by Ishigaki Rin. This amazing poetry collection was published in 2022 by Isobar Press. Hi, Janine, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here today, Takeshi. It's a real pleasure, and I'm very happy for Ishigaki Rin to be getting this recognition. Uh, I think this is just really, really fantastic collection of poetry and a beautiful poetry from such a talented uh, writer from 20th century Japan. Um, but so I have a lot of questions to ask in relation to this uh, collection. But before getting into it, um, could you tell us who you are and you know what you usually do in this field of Japanese literature and beyond and how your life kind of came across with this collection of poetry and led to this uh, publication? Yes, well, um, where do I begin when you say who I am? <laughs> that's a very, <laughs> as a philosopher, very... you know, that's a very <laughs> something mm. question. Um, but I'm an American. I was born in New York City and I was in college. I was planning to go into English literature, but in my senior year for um, complicated reasons, I suddenly shifted to um, Japanese literature. And so I got my doctorate in Japanese literature at Columbia University, working with Donald Keene. And then I married a Japanese man and I came to live in Japan for what I thought was a few years, but turned out to be a very long time. And I'm still here. And I've had a academic career here teaching at Daito Bunkai University, uh, teaching Japanese literature mostly. And during that time, um, I worked with several Japanese poets, uh, including Ooka Makoto, one of the leading poets of modern Japan. And I translated his poetry, and then he introduced me to the poetry of Ishigaki Rin, which I liked very, very much. And 
after a very long time, I finally published a collection of her poetry last year with Isobar Press, which is um, an extremely interesting press in Japan that publishes in English. And um, let's see. So that's how I got into Ishigaki Rin. She's, I, I wanted to do women poets, and I had been working on Yosona Akiko, who I'm still working on. She's the great modern uh, female Japanese poet who lived 1878 to 1942. Um, so she's the generation, a generation or two before Ishigaki Rin, who let's see but i forget when she was born but she died in in not in this century and in any case um so yeah that's how i got to ishigaki Rin. and i i as i said i wanted to do women poets and of all the then contemporary women poets because when i began to work on her she was still alive um she attracted me most i just loved her work there's a very strong, well, stark differences between Yosano Akiko and uh, Ishigaki Rin's poetry style. Um, but do you think there's some sort of underlying similarity between them? Or do you feel there's a generational gap between, um, you know, from 19th century to early 20th century Japanese woman poetry to Ishigaki Rin's very 20th century, like almost like an entire 20th century to the beginning of 21st century um do you feel the similarity or differences or what's your well there's um akiko was very different from most of the women of her generation in her mm -hmm. in having ambition poetic ambition and in not having a loyalty to her family that made her um i shouldn't say she wasn't loyal to her family but but she felt well it, let me just put it that way. She she was not afraid to be ambitious in a literary sense, and that was extremely unusual. And Ishigaki, um, Ishi, it's a very hard question to answer. They're mm -hmm. they're alike in that they both have a very strong sense of individuality, and but they're very unalike in that Akiko got married um, and had thirteen children, gave birth to thirteen children, of whom eleven survived to adulthood whereas ishigaki never married and if you read her work really carefully um she was in love and i think she probably went through the experience of deciding whether or not to have a child whether or not she was pregnant at that time and had an abortion or she just decided not to have one and not to get married is completely unclear akiko was very open about her personal life in her poetry ishigaki was very closed um, but there, Ishigaki really, one of the things she says is that when she was first working, she went to work when she was 14 in a bank because she wanted to have, she wanted not to be dependent on her family and she wanted to be able to have some money to buy the girls' magazines that she loved to read. And, um... She said when she first went to work in the bank, she felt sorry for the men because they always had to worry about all kinds of things she didn't have to worry about. And they had to have ambition, not literary ambition, but business ambition. And she didn't have to have it because she knew that there was a very, very low glass ceiling. And so she was free just to do 
what she liked to do, which was to write. So it was for Akiko to write was an act of rebellion. Um, but for Ishigaki to write was just something she could do in her spare time on her own. And she didn't have to talk about it to anybody else. So, and that was how it was for women at that time, because she knew she wasn't going to be able to be a professional. She didn't have a room of her own, as Virginia Woolf would have said. Um, she had to have a day job. And so it, it, they're different in many, many ways, but they're alike in the sense that they both had a very strong sense of self. And I think that's why Ishigaki didn't get married, because she wasn't going to let any man boss her around. And that was just what she knew she would have to do um, if she got married. And Akiko was able somehow to finesse that situation. <laughs> and Although she had a lot of trouble with her husband, too. But he always, it, it was different. It was different. It's, um, so it's they're interesting alike how, and they're right. not alike. Right. It's really interesting how Yosana Akiko had this idea of independence of woman. And then right. she talked about how, uh, you know, the whole state protection of motherhood, Bose Hogoronso, became like a central topic in early 20th century among the Japanese women thinkers and talked about, she, she Yosan Akiko talked about how the state protection of women will make them really depend upon on the society of men. So they should really strive toward, you know, economic independence and independence of their thought. And it looks like Ishigaki didn't actually practice that. Right? Yes, that that's she, so she, interesting. Yes, Ishigaki, what you, I don't know if what you just said is going to be on the recording. It won't be, right? So mm -hmm. Akiko was involved in this very long-running debate between with other women thinkers about whether or not the state should, should support mothers, should pay them, essentially. And she was against it because she thought that it would make them less, it would deprive them of independence, basically. So as what you just said and what they're going to edit out of, of the thing is, is that Ishigaki is actually actualizing what Akiko thought of as an ideal. She supported herself all through her life and she was never dependent. In fact, she's after the war when her father and her stepmother and her two brothers um, were all completely unable to support themselves and they lived in a one-room apartment for I don't know, a long time. She supported them all. Um, so, yeah, she's. It's that's really such an interesting thing to say, that she actually does actualize Akiko's idea of what a woman should be. Yeah. There's also a strong element of both hope and disappointment in her poetry. It feels, um, I mean, starting with the greetings, that there's a sense of, I mean, it's just a remarkable poet, uh, poem, first of all, that greetings, right? That the description of, um, because this is a G7 Hiroshima summit is taking place right now. So probably this is the really good topic to talk about. But she looks at the picture of Hiroshima right after the atomic bomb. And she came up with the poetry that became sensational, basically, that, that shows her talent in showing her as a poet. But she's doing that as like a full-time worker at the bank. So she's completely in this capitalistic, industrialized, modern Japanese economy. And then she's 
doing this literary work and she never became um full-time writer until she her retirement correct right yeah she was a part-time writer during her thing the one thing you have to remember about ishigaki is that post-war the trade unions were extremely powerful until the the crackdown on the communists. And they had a very important cultural arm. And that was what was supporting her. When she went in the story of how she wrote the poem Greetings, which is about Hiroshima, was that, that she came into work one morning and the day before the occupation authorities had said, from now on, you can show photographs of Hiroshima until then. And this was, I think, 1950 or so. Um, the Japanese had not been allowed to see them in public. And so the trade union, the, the vice president or whatever it was, who was you know the, the big guy in her office, called her into the office and said, tomorrow we're going to have that photograph up on the wall when everyone comes in to sign the attendance book to say that they're here, they put their stamps on, and we want you to write a poem to go with that. And you have one hour to do it. <laughs> And she oh, said, really? yes, one hour yeah. It's in the introduction to the book. She wrote about it later. And the guy, the trade union official who showed her the picture and she herself, when they looked at it, were tremendously shocked because these were graphic pictures. And she said she wrote it. She wrote the poem in an hour and it was like she was hit with symbols. And I forget the exact description, but it's in the introduction to the book. It was just she hardly knew what she was doing. And then she saw that book. So it's extremely interesting what you said about how it combines hope and despair, because it despair is there that this happened. And yet she's even as she writes the poem, she's at the end, she's looking at it. She said, can't you hear something coming near we're just like those people who were caught in Hiroshima when they thought nothing, you know, everything was as it was and nothing was going to happen. They were just, but they didn't know they were walking the boundary between life and death and we're the same way. And I thought about that a long time. Why would she say that? But this was the time when the Cold War was beginning and nuclear weapons were very, very frightening. And she was asking people to think about the future, to think what we can do. And that's the note of hope. That's never. That's why the book is called This Overflowing Light, it, although it's a line from one of her poems. Even though she knew despair and she knew tremendous unhappiness, she never lost that, that sense of a future that you could look forward to and that, that sense of, of hope that underlay it. So it's really an amazing... It's just amazing to me, that spirit. There are several poems that sort of bring you to tears. Just to, you just started to tear from reading it. Um, but there's, so it, 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 it seems like a both sides. There's a strong hope, but also there's a strong despair and a disappointment. Um, I'm trying to think about some of the poems that I read that are really struck me as really interesting is, for instance, the poverty. It's poverty. The, the, the poverty, right. That The fact that she had to feed all these family members in, in one room and then family members dying and their description of their own death are described as consolation, that you have more space for you to keep living. So she has this sense of like liberation from like everyday life and working at the bank. And I'm sure her job was 
horrendous <laughs> in a modern standard. I mean, she could spend time writing afterwards, but when she's working at the bank, it cannot possibly be a great work, right? And then it seems like there's a sense of like sacrificing for your family. Then, you know, death is a sacrificial offering of the space for the family members. And then she described the symbolism of almost like a cannibalism. And not only among the humans, but also like all the sentient beings are eating each other to survive. And there's something in us that really makes us cry, the cry of animals. And I grew up with um, Miyazawa Kenji. And then, you know, we watched a lot of Ghibli movies. <laughs> so she has that sense of this sort of interconnectedness among the all the sentient beings. And somehow there's like a cycle of suffering and cycle of this despair. And that keeps us in this poverty that we can never overcome f- for some reason. And do you feel this sort of like despair in hard work as well in, in, in opposition to the whole? There is, I think the despair that I feel in her work is her never having been able to marry and have a child. I feel that very deeply as a woman in the poem Seascape and how um, I think at some point she felt that maybe her, her staying with her family was a way to escape a human relationship. Um, and the see that's another interesting historical thing is historically she's one of the first woman poets to object to the family system in such a wonderful marvelously literary way and yet she does it in this very funny black humor style you talk about poverty that's one of the direct poems but then there are these very funny ones like sprouting where she compares herself to an octopus being eaten by her family and whatever they eat one leg, another leg is going to sprout or the poem Nakugo, where she pretends that, which is actually modeled on the comic monologue, Rakugo. And she um, talks as though she is one of the actors giving that um giving that monologue and it's it's an incredible tour de force of a poem so it's she got out of this terrible situation a lot of humor um but it's but it retains the tears and that's what i think is so wonderful it's it's not you know well yeah that's what i think is so wonderful about it you yeah there's a profound sense of humor that Catholic at the end of experiencing yes. these like despair and, and, and li- living life of working class in 20th century Japan as yes. a woman, right? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. It's definitely like that. And mm-hmm. see, there was something else I wanted to say that you made me think of. Um, I think one of the poems you were thinking of is one of her most famous poems, which is what is it called? <laughs> Living. It's been Mm -hmm. translated many times, and there she depicts herself as a cannibal, basically. Yeah, that's... that's one of her real signature poems. And then... um, Should I read that? Yes, please. You can put it anywhere you want, but it's not that long. Um, Living... 
you can't live without eating rice, vegetables, meat, air, light, water. Parents, siblings, teachers, money, and hearts too. Without eating them, I could never have lived. I pat my full stomach, wipe my lips. The kitchen is littered with carrot tops, chicken bones, daddy's guts. The fading light of 40. For the first time, my eyes weep a wild beast's tears. So this poem is really interesting in many, many ways. Um, but people who lived through the war and the after years of the war, and maybe you too, I don't know, Takeshi, often when they hear this poem, you talked about poems that bring you to tears. This is one of the poems that bring people to tears who lived through that because they realize, they remember how selfish they had to be when they didn't want to be, you know. And when you talk about poverty and how she is unhappy because someone says to her at her grandfather's funeral that now you'll have an extra tatami mat of room, and she feels so badly about that. So I, I think to understand the what it was like to have gone through the war when you weren't particularly supporting it or when maybe you were even a child, um, and then to survive after the war, that she's one of the best poets to read because she just expressed that feeling so well that people now really don't understand. It's not just the poverty, but it's the how terrible it was to have to be so selfish when you didn't want to be. Um, and then also something that we haven't discussed is the anger that she felt at Japan's leaders and even at the emperor. She wrote several really, really... Um, hostile poems <laughs> to the emperor. Um, and there's one wonderful poem where she, um, can I, just let me read this poem. Yes, please. Um, it's, it's called um, After the Ceremony. And it's about when the, an army of the high ranking, a general or something gives out um medals, posthumous medals, to the family of soldiers who have died. And so that's what the ceremony is. It's an award-giving ceremony to people who have died. With deepest reverence, an aged mother receives her son's decoration for soldiers who died in the war. A grown son's youthful hand grips his father's medal firmly. There the ceremony ended. After all, the war's ended. More than 20 years have passed. Ending a ceremony is easy. Reality is not as easy. The soldiers who died with their eyes open throng in belatedly saying, oh, look, it's the great empire of Japan. All the old familiar faces are here. How good to see you in such fine health, General. We are here at your service. There may not be another chance, so please hand out the medals to us in person. They're no use to our wives and children. Attention. 
So she imagines the ghosts of the dead soldiers coming in. And she also has, um, I don't want to make her sound like she only felt sorry for Japan. She knew about the war crimes and all those things. And she wrote about them too. And, but she didn't, she knew about them later, I think. And she has an essay where she says that, you know, I didn't realize that much what was going on. Of course, she didn't like the government. Um, she didn't like the fascists because they were, you know, anti-art <laughs> basically. Um, but, but she, but she, but she also was taken in. She said later, by the idea that it was good to give your life for the emperor and for the country. And she, there's a very moving um, sort of recollection that she has, where she says to one to someone, "Please don't ever be like me." And say banzai to someone going off to war and tell them not to come back alive. And that, again, is where she links with Akiko, because one of Akiko's most famous poems is Kimishini Tamo Koto Nakare, which I translate as Thou Shalt Not Die. And she wrote that poem telling her brother the opposite of what everyone was saying. She was saying, you shouldn't die. Come. He was fighting in the Russo-Japanese War. And she just, without thinking about it, she knew that she didn't want him to die and she wasn't going to tell him to die. And she wasn't going to go for that craziness. But Ishigaki didn't know that. And I think that she regretted it very, very much later on. Um, so it's it's very precious, those voices, those very, very precise and sincere and passionate voices that we really need to remember and to learn from. Yeah. There's a strong sense also that um, of post-war and also during the World War II, the position of woman, um, mm -hmm. that they sort of subjugated into this narrative of sending off their children and a husband and, and, and father, male figure to the war front. And then after the war, there's very strange shift in the narrative that things are gonna get better. Uh-huh. And then Ishigaki-rin seemed to be very critical of that sort of superficial turn to think that because war is over, therefore Japan is going to be a better place. And she seemed to be she doesn't also think... saying that it's just the same same government. It's the same infrastructure that implemented that sort of injustice is still in place. And, you know, it's so it was so naive for me. To, I mean, it's a poem right next to the after the ceremony. She has a poem, Woman. And it ends with, um, I believe in you is all I say and I rise up. I've had enough or what a fool I was. Yeah, I love that poem, woman. It's an amazing poem. It's just it's, that, yeah. you know, the low glass ceiling is broken, but there's more several layers of ceilings. Right. That is exactly. just in place that she can't. She right. thinks that it's just naive to think that we can, one generation just suddenly just, change i i wish what you just said could be in our recording <laughs> oh i think they would they'll leave these so don't worry oh, about it Jenny. Oh, yeah oh, this oh, is a great discussion so uh oh they I should actually leave all of your stuff out oh no I'm no so no no this is our oh, conversation good. so 
yes, great, please. great, great. Uh, yeah, no, that's absolutely so true. And if you read her essay, she has three or four volumes of essays and a couple of, you know, other things that she put together um, in prose. And she talks not only about how things haven't changed when I thought they were going to change, but also how certain things have changed that I wish were the same. <laughs> you know? So she also has that kind of nostalgia for an earlier period as well. But it's completely true. I think she was so disillusioned. She thought things would be better, and yet she saw pollution, and she saw climate change, and she saw all this stuff that we've just begun talking about in the last 20, 30 years, but she was seeing it earlier. So in, in another way, I think she's quite prophetic, which all the best poets are. All the poets, yeah, are prophetic when they're really, really good. And I do feel... Some of the things that she's focusing on are precisely the kind of the issues that we're dealing with today. Um, maybe from the perspective of feminism, she has this the most, I would say the most famous among Japanese, uh, before me, the soup pot, the rice pot and the bright burning flame. When I present this poem to my students after reading Yosano Akiko, Hiratsuka Daicho, and then jump to the Murata Sayaka to just kind of paint the contemporary Japanese woman thinkers and Ishigaki Rin represents like 20th century Japan. I think by far she's the one of the best examples to just exhibit what woman poets and woman thinkers um, a life is like. Now when I read this as Japanese men there's something in it that makes me feel there is um, element of and I'm going to sound crazy for saying this. There's some element of being woman in Japan and participating in these activities that could be labeled as anti-feminist activities, such as working in a kitchen. She seemed to be suggesting that, no, like there is something in old ways of living that we should preserve, precisely what you said. But when I give it to my students in 21st century UK education, they find this poem to be very difficult to handle, to believe that being in the kitchen somehow, and I understand that being in the kitchen is such a really anti-feminist symbolism. And, you know, um, I mean, famous book by Yoshimoto Banana, The Kitchen. It's, it's, a tough, it's a hard issue to carry it on to the new generation. How would you suggest to read this poem? Well, I think, and I, I think I say this in the introduction too, that she wrote that poem, or maybe it's in the note, she wrote that poem for a special issue that was put out about women um, by the trade union cultural magazine in her office, you know, in her place where she worked, her place of work in the bank, which by the way, was the largest bank in Japan. Um, sort of like working for Chase or something now. Um, but anyway, um, so I, th I think that, that she was a little bit constrained. She wanted to write something that would be acceptable. Of course, it was mostly men who were in authority at that magazine, although later on she became, she achieved a kind of higher position there. Um, so I think that was partly on her mind. But also the last verse of the poem is, um, what is it? It's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to translate, but um, let's see. Before me, be on page 49. Um, 
Yeah. So she says, with feeling as deep as when with these cherished vessels we cook meat and potatoes, let's study politics and economics and literature. Not for the sake of pride or glory, but all and always to provide sustenance for human beings, all and always our efforts infused with love. So I think she was saying, you know, it's okay to like to cook, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> but you got to do the other stuff too. We can do everything. And I, th I think that's the way I would probably present it. But also um, with this caveat, that uh let's see yeah it was first published published in ishigaki's workplace newspaper as part of a special issue devoted to women um so i i think you know she was trying to take a balanced view and some of you know she Tomoko Aoyama, who's one of the best scholars of Akiku in English, has written a paper about eating and Ishigaki eating. And food and eating were very important symbols to her. So I think she maybe presents a feminist um, viewpoint that you don't have to disallow yourself or disbar yourself from cooking. It's okay, guys. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> It, it's, um, it's interesting, right? The the whole poem of the living has this sort of like the tone and symbolism and structure of the poetry that looks like uh, kitchen after cooking, right? All these pieces just poised and you feel like something's being sacrificed for our sustenance. But then another poem she's talking about, there's element of sustenance that is actually nourishing and a really good. So like studying economics and, and the politics are not necessarily participation into this you know, sacrificial lamb of the capitalistic society. There's something in what we do can be liberating. Um, so there's always like the side of very sad, uh, depressing, um, you know, cons consumption and sacrifices on the one side. And then there's like, th no, there's a streaming line of sustenance and, and nutrients that we can actually gain from this activity. And she's very stark from two sides and it's 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 um it's very hard to describe it because it's immediately when it's cooking and in the kitchen sustenance and it's just all the uh you know phrases that raise the red flag for feminist thinking but she seemed to be always saying that there's always the two sides to whatever activity we engage with Yes. I think, you know, a lot of these really, really good women poets can't be put into these straight jackets of any political position because they just they're too great. Their, their thinking is too is too complicated. And Akiko is like that, too. I mean, f that poem, Thou Shalt Not Die, was often taken as an expression of, you know, anti-war pacifism. But Akiko is not a pacifist. So then people who, who think you should be pacifist all your life have trouble with the fact that she wrote Tanka telling her youngest son, who was a soldier, to fight hard. You know? And they, they don't know how to deal with it because they want everything to be, you know, one way or the other. But people aren't like that. At least, well, I think people aren't like that, especially great poets. They, it, well, Ezra Pound is a sort of exception. but There is um, the poem, Kappa that really describes that sort of like ambiguity of human existence and 
this journalist comes in to her workplace because she's revered as one of the most popular poets. And they ask this questions, how is your working situation like? And then she goes through this entire introspection of how monstrous we are in some ways. <laughs> and then she just says, it's not that bad. You know, but she reflects on the entire communication as such a disingenuous right. monstrosity of human communications that we want to put into the straight jacket of oh, it's a great place, it's not a great place, and you're not even understanding the complexity of my life as a woman. Right, the complicated part that that introspection thing is how it really is, how hypocritical it is, and then the part at the end, it's going great or whatever she says. That's what she says to the journalist because she knows he's not going to get it, as you just said. It's too complicated. So you often have that feeling in her poetry that she's letting you in on these complicated things that almost can't be explained, but somehow something happens. And it, it, you do, maybe you couldn't, it is explained, even if maybe it's a little bit hard to get. Yeah. I have a, two questions about you as a translator. Um, what are the most difficult part? I mean, it's such a simple, elegant language that she uses and are very accessible to the wider audience. And it must be very difficult to achieve that with English. Um, what was the most, I mean, you mentioned a little bit that this part was very difficult to translate. What was the most difficulty? What the most difficult poem to do? In terms of translating her into English. Well, one of the very difficult things about her language is that she often uses very colloquial phrases. And and they can, a colloquial phrase, like, for instance, the one in nameplates, that first line, I must have made about 20 or 30 translations of that because I just couldn't figure out how to do it. Um, And now, now what is it? I finally ended up, wherever you live, nothing beats putting the nameplate up by yourself. And it looks very simple, um, but there are like 20 or 30 different ways you can do that. And I couldn't decide which one was best until I was talking about it with my husband, who has a feel for her language. And he finally said, you know what it's like? It's when you say in the it, the ad for coke nothing beats a coke or nothing beats you know that ad which i don't even remember what it's from and i thought oh yeah that's what it is you know and he but we were thinking of all kinds of contexts in which that phrase would be used none it's nani nani ni kagyuru um and so i i think or then what i translated after that was um at the end, miss the honorable a hex on them both. A hex is like, you know, at first I really was not sure if I should use that because she just said she didn't like it, you know. But I realized that it comes off very strong in the Japanese, so I had to find something like that in English. So it was finding, I, I think the casual language that she often uses is the most difficult to translate. And things that seem very complicated, you have to think about them for a long time. What does she really mean? In a way, it may be hard to figure out what she really means, but then when you figure it out, it's easy to translate because there's only one or two ways to say it. You know, so it's it's the colloquial, um, the colloquial language that's very difficult to make to make it. It's not difficult to figure out what it means, but it's difficult to 
keep from killing it when you translate it into English, to keep it alive. You know, like it's it's one thing to say a hex on them both is much more alive than saying I hate them both. You know, that's sort of, you know, anyone could do that. You know. Um, you also had a chance to meet Har in person. Yes, yes. Did that, like, how, how was it like? And did it actually affect your reading of her poem or yes, in, in any way? Yeah, there's one poem. Um, I, I forget which one is it. I talk about this in the introduction too, but it's um, um, these days the, the shoes that fell off on page sixty-six. Um, when I read that, I really felt like that was about you know a love affair that had gone wrong. But there's nothing directly in it that says that. But I just felt that. So when I met her, I asked her, and she said, "Yeah, it's about a shitsukoi." you know, a love affair gone wrong. And so when I was working on Isobar with the translations, um, Paul Rossiter, who runs Isobar, was a very active and wonderful reader and editor. Um, he, I translated it at, so that you could tell that it was about someone she had been together. And he said, I didn't feel that in the poem. <laughs> And I said, well, and then I could tell him that she had actually told me. So that was really, really useful. Um, and, yeah, so it was quite an event meeting her. She was an extraordinary, very quiet, but a very extraordinary and self-assured person. That's really interesting because it's, it's such a quiet poem, but it's very strong. The, the stroke is really strong and there are elements of humor, but there's elements of very strong personality that can communicate like the entire, there's one poem that she talks about how to teach a universe to be a universe. Um, I'm just trying to remember exactly. There's actually her handwriting in um, secret. That's Himegoto that she talks about. Um, like how we actually raise human beings as human beings and there's a whole universe of teaching with each other and it has a very strong sense that she's also trying to teach us not only about getting clear about her feelings and her, you know, crystallizing her experience as a woman in 20th, 20th century Japan by this sense of like cosmic teaching of each other and then she places herself in that like, you oh, should follow my lead. So, that is so true. That's where, where she's a philosopher, because she always has this sense of a great cosmos, and we're just this tiny little dot in it. You know, so even at her most despairing, she never loses that sense. And that's another reason why she uses the word this overflowing light. That's basically where she is. That's her concept which she had from the time she was a child. She was always connected. She went up on the roof of her elementary school and she would be sketching the clouds and thinking of marrying a cloud. That's also in the introduction, you know, that kind of thing. But I wanted to tell you something that happened. I don't think I put it in the book. Um, when I met her, we were sitting in a, a coffee shop in the Tokyo Station Hotel, which was her one of her favorite haunts. And I think that it was closed or closed while we were there or something. Anyway, we were the only customers. But as we were talking, some guy walked past the table really quickly, kind of 
he didn't push our table, but he sort of pushed another chair. It was very aggressive. And he could, it was like he could have even have been a Yakuza or something, you know, and I was sort of, I went, oh, you know, and she just looked up at him with this very appraising eye. She wasn't scared at all. She wasn't, and I thought that's how she looked at these people who were keeping the glass ceiling down. And that's how she looked at society. And that's what kept her going in the bank that she just knew she, she just wasn't scared of anything. Yeah. There's a kind of like overflowing compassion from her side and, 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 and the sort of approving, forgiving eyes, or is it more perceptive distance that she has? To I think the world? it's more perceptive distance. She was looking at this person. Who, who is that? What's he up to? You know, that's what was like that. It wasn't compassion because it didn't call for that. You know, it was just this very aggressive person. Yeah. So she she had an inner assurance that I think kept her going too. Akiko also had it. You know, this, this inner... I mean, people like that, it doesn't matter how much they feel guilty or how much they feel despair, anything like that. There's always something inside that's very strong. And with... Ishigaki, you feel it is this connection to the universe that you were talking about before. Um, so, yeah. Wow. So you get to actually see her practicing that sort of poetic eyes and distance from yeah, like something emotionally charged experience like that, especially if you're in a, living in the city of Tokyo and somebody get close by, we just immediately have this emotional reaction, probably also in the New York City. But she was just... Right sort of perceiving well, in New York, it. you might really be in danger. <laughs> <laughs> more, might more. Throw you off. Yeah. Right. But I don't think she actually felt in danger. Huh. Yeah. That is Although really, I come really from New York, so I might have felt more in danger. More, than more than usual than the Japanese standard. I was just surprised, you know. <laughs> but I still remember her look. It was just, it was so, you know, head sort of back, just looking, oh, who's that? What's he doing? Yeah. Did you do you have any favorite poem or if you are to pick one? I mean, this is a very difficult question and recommended yeah. to um, students in Europe studying Japanese literature and philosophy. Mm. Which one would you recommend? There's so many that I really love. Um, there's a sort of long one. Mm-hmm. Is it okay if it's a little bit long? Please. There's one. I don't know. Well, this is called Festival. Is it okay? It's called Festival of the Blind. The blind is now one of those words. It's okay. Okay. Um, everyone has two faces. One set of features for the face above and one for the body below. That set, we're in the habit of hiding. The breasts are sightless eyes, and the blind know even if you can't see things, they're there. Something must be there. Touching makes it real. One day, in the joy and sadness of the thing made real, the woman's eyes brim over and rain white tears. With white tears, she'll raise a child. 
The small indentation in the middle of the belly is a primeval nose. The nose in distant days within the womb sniffed something strange. From there, flower fragrance, tidal scent, wind and light blew in. And those first memories it tucked deep inside its own soft folds. Below the nose, in women and men too, lies a patch of grass and an ancient marsh ringed by ferns, insects chirping in their shade, many tongues burning. The tongues know about the feast soon to be arranged on an oceanic table, fruits which no country has ever grown, splendid banquets whose recipes no chef knows, wine of fire. All over the world, everyone flings off their clothes, sits down to table. Festival of the blind, bacchanal of drums, bonfires without heat, without color. So I always think of this as a kind of anti-sex poem. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> and it's very interesting um but it's also it's a feminist poem in a way because it's against you know all these occasions when people are just supposed to give in to lust and go to bed together and without that but i probably shouldn't say that much about it because it may spoil it it's such you a know, different ways to read yeah, yeah. exactly mm -hmm. and mine is probably a very literal reading of it but I, I just love that. I love the last part about the feast and the bacchanal of drums and the bonfires without heat, without color. You know, it's, it's I also story. felt this was about the human lust toward the natural resources as well. It's, oh, it's, it's very interesting. You know, so it's, it's not only between humans and, you know, like just sort of like subjugating each other into its own uh, satisfaction, but also like these cosmic images of how we use these things for our own end. And yeah. she's trying to dissociate us from that sort of like lust toward natural environment, probably because I've been reading too many um, indigenous philosophy lately, but it, it does resonate with some of the symbolisms that um, fascinating. I get from, um, you know. Yes, because I've always felt that actually my feeling about it was a little bit too literal, as I said. As to what you say, I think it is more than that. And it it's is like the beast beast tears. I feel sometimes she has this tendency to project ourselves into the animal consciousness. And from that perspective, it seems like it's much more about cosmos. Yes. Um, including human interrelations, I feel. Yeah. Yes, I think you're completely right. That's beautiful. Right. Mm -hmm. That makes yeah. me so glad I translated it. It's great, great uh, translation, and I, I can tell it's a, such a short poem. But it's as you said, you, you have to translate so many times. Yeah, it get so many different versions, and you have to make a decision. I guess it must part be of that is because it has so much resonance, and when I translate, I kind of forget that. I try to get the precise thing it should be, but then when you read it, you open it up again, and then the resonance resounds. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's fantastic. That's a beautiful reading of it. Thank you. 
No, thank you for translating. Otherwise, um, I wouldn't have thought about this uh, at all. But the um, now we are way over the time, but it feels like we haven't even touched the surface of this book. <laughs> so um, I'd like to ask you a question. Like from here, um, where would you go from um, this project? Like, are you working on any other project right now? Well, What's your future? On, um, I'm working on Yosano Akiko. And I have several Akiko projects. I'm kind of having trouble deciding which one to put first. But one is a book of translations of her poetry from her entire career, which was over 40 years. Um, and another is a book about her journey to Europe, which involves a lot of poetry, but also a travel diary that she wrote. And a third is a biography. Well, this, I, I've written the first volume of her biography, which takes her up to the age of 23. And since she died at 63, that's leaving a lot out. Um, so I really should do the second volume. Um, but I'm, I'm just, you know, I don't know. So I have those, my fingers in those three or four different, but they're all Akiko related. Just Yosan Akiko is this enormous, enormous presence in modern Japanese literature. So it's, yeah, it's an honor. It, to... it does feel that it's not well studied in um, Anglophone academia. I do feel that the amount of um, the canonical point of view in relation to the history of Japanese philosophy, she's enormous. But she doesn't even show up in um, contemporary European scholarships on um, Japanese woman thinkers or woman thinkers in general. She tends to be right. Um, That's the marginalized. Thing. Yeah, Akiko was a poet and a thinker and an essayist. And the thinker part, I feel, is a little bit easier to do because it doesn't rely so much on translating correct, precisely. You know, you get her thinking. Um, but the poetry part is very difficult. And, but people tend to minimize the thinking part because in Japan, because she's more famous as a poet. But I, th I think maybe in the European context, one way to get her in is to approach the thought. Oh, it's not that difficult. Yeah, it is a massive work to be done. And I'm very looking forward to the development of this project. And um, I, I could immediately name a few people that would be overjoyed about the fact that you, yeah, about the fact that you are actually working on translation of Yosano Akiko, um, because it's about time for us to actually make it available in English to the are wider you audience. About her as poet or as thinker, when you say that, or both. I think the question is, can we even separate? And I think that's what the Ishigaki Rin's is a is a kind of um, example that we cannot. Um, as you said, is it, clearly you suggested that. You can't put a person into a straitjacket, especially if that person is a poet. And I think that applies to the philosophical interpretation of poets as both as, you know, artists, but also a thinker. And her essays are never just straightforward philosophical treaties that it has a symbolisms. She refers to the past memories and talk about things. And then we have to put that into a context as you're talking about Akiko when you say that or, Akiko, or, yeah. And I think yeah, the Ishigaki Rin represents that sort of like inability to uh, you know, it, it would be insensitive for us to just ask the question of is Yosano Akiko feminist and presenting position X 
and then reductively read the entire work by saying yes, no. I think that's a terrible way to actually approach. And this is probably the reason why nobody's reading Yosano Akiko in the context of European philosophy, um, just because it's, she's not presenting a treatise, um, you know, and her position needs to be always um, nuanced. And I think that goes for um, Shiratsu Raicho as well. That when whenever she says one thing that seems to be contradicting with another position, it just requires more attention to her autobiography and, you know, the poetry that she wrote to give us a better concrete picture of it. Um, and then Yamaka Kikue is much more consistent and I think she's much more logician, um, but because she's a socialist, nobody is reading her. So I think the Japanese woman thinkers in general suffer from this uh, structural problem in academia to really appreciate what they do um, so I think starting from the poetry sometimes is, is really best way for us to just kind of silence the sort of like theoretical framework, then just listen to what she has to say, then start thinking about what does this poem actually make us think. And I think Ishigaki-rin is a great example of um, 20th century Japanese woman thinkers. Mm, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful that you think that, that she comes across that way, because I think she really deserves it. She is a thinker. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. I think we can just talk forever if we just talk about 20th century and 19th century Japanese woman thinkers. But I'm really looking forward to the development of the um, your future projects in Yosano Akiko. And thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. I love talking with people about things like this. I, and I hope this is going to be one of many to come in the future. Thank you. And thank you, everyone. This was our discussion with Janine Beichman, who is the translator of Ishigaki-rin's This Overflowing Light. See you next time.